much is too much? How much, really, how much is too much? Now, I know what you're thinking. It depends what you're getting ready to buy. How much is too much? And yes, that's true. Sometimes there is a price that's just too much and we won't pay it. My wife is that way. She'll see something that she's interested in purchasing and she'll say, nope, the price has to come down. And so she'll wait. She might check back in a week or two or whatever. And if the price has come down to what she thinks is okay, then she might purchase it. She has in mind how much is too much. Well, think about it a different way. How much is too much when it comes to filet mignon? How much is too much? Or how much is too much pizza? Well, we generally tend to know how much is too much when we've eaten too much, but how much is too much? How much is too much sunshine? We in Florida, we're fortunate we have a lot of sunshine, but how much is too much? Well, you might say if you get sunburned, that's too much. If you live in the place in the world where it's cloudy much of the time, you'd say, There can't be too much sunshine. Well, how about consider snow? How much is too much snow? Now, I've lived in snow country, so I have a little idea what people think about snow in that area. We in Florida, we've come through winter and we don't think too much about cold weather this time of the year, but I know other places still do. And perhaps snow is in the forecast for you. So how much is too much snow? Well, I think you're catching on to the idea. I'm trying to get us to think about how much is too much, both in terms of what we might want, maybe in terms of what we might give for something. We're going to explore that this today on the program, Faith Is, and I want to welcome you to our time together. It's always a privilege to have you here. You honor us by your presence, and you're kind enough to take some time to listen, and I hope you find it helpful. I am Pastor Rick Stevens, and I'm the pastor of Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida. We are a real church with real people and all of the things that go with that, but we have a great bunch of people, and you would love them if you could meet them, and they help us have this time together and are supportive of doing this, and I thank them for that, and I'm sure you do as well. And we hope this time is not just time that we listen and think about what the Bible says. We hope it actually helps you have faith. And what we mean by that is we hope it helps you have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Because we've talked about faith on this program, and and I keep talking about it in these terms to help prod us in the right direction. Because we've said that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Now, I know people will push back and say, well, faith could be something else, or it could be this, or it could be that, and I'm not going to quibble with that. We're just taking this approach to faith because it seems to me that when we have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, we will not be reluctant to do what God asks us to do, to follow Him faithfully, to live lives of of hope, to live lives of confidence in Him, to live maybe even extravagantly because we will learn how much is too much.
Now, one of the things that I've made a valiant effort to discover, and I have not yet exactly discovered that answer, I still do not know how much is too much ice cream. Now, over the years, I've had a number of experiments with that. I, years ago, I went to an ice cream shop in Michigan and I ordered a belly buster and it didn't bust my belly. I rather enjoyed it. Well, you might have the same experience. We used to make, occasionally still do, not as often, but we used to make homemade ice cream. And mercy, I still don't know how much is too much of that. So we're going to try to stretch our understanding of this idea of how much is too much. Or maybe you want to think about it this way, how much is too little? In John chapter 12, we have the story of a woman who anointed Jesus with perfume that was worth a year's wages. Now, some of the texts say perfume, and that's a good description. We'll talk about that a little bit. It's really a scented oil. Was, was that too much of that oil, or was it too little? You know, Judas was in the story, and Judas condemned the woman, should have done something different with the value of that perfume. But Jesus commended her. What do you say? Maybe the real question is, can we ever be too extravagant toward God? Well, let's take a look at the story, and I would encourage you to follow along if you're where you can. I'm going to read the story for us. If you can't follow along, don't worry. We'll read it and help remind each other. You may have heard the story. Maybe it's new to you, but we'll remind each other of what the story is about as we go along. But I want to start by reading this rather brief story in the life of Jesus. In John chapter 12, we're going to read verses 1 through 8 and kind of unpack this idea of how much is too much or thought of a different way. Can we be really too extravagant toward God? Well, let's find out. John chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. So the setting's pretty straightforward. It was six days before Passover. It was in the town of Bethany. The town of Bethany was a short distance from Jerusalem, about th three kilometers, by the way, you measure in kilometers. So you realize it wasn't very far to go. It would have been a little more than a mile, but probably not two miles, if I remember my conversion well. And so he was at 
he, Jesus, was at a familiar setting. He had spent time there with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And as the very opening statement of, of this story tells us, uh, Lazarus was a guy Jesus had raised from the dead. That's a pretty significant deal, but it locates them where they are. And you may remember that story that Lazarus had died, and, and Jesus came after he had died and been buried, and he called him out of the tomb, and Lazarus came forth. Many years ago now, when I visited Israel, it was, it was great fun to visit the traditional site of the tomb of Lazarus. Like a lot of sites, I'm not sure we know exactly if that's the correct one, but it is the right kind of tomb, and it is the one that we visit and that we talk about being the tomb of Lazarus. And so in this particular place, you kind of climb down into the tomb. It wasn't terribly crowded. It was just... Uh, that's the way it was laid out. So we could climb down into the, the tomb, usually one at a time, and see the layout of it, see how it had been cut out of the rock. And then, of course, uh, never to pass up an opportunity to have a little fun, we would come forth from the tomb and as though we were Lazarus being resurrected and coming forth from the tomb. Well, this is the setting where Jesus was with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, Lazarus being the brother of Mary and Martha, Mary and Martha being Lazarus' sisters. And so they give a dinner in honor of Jesus, and Martha is serving the dinner, and Lazarus is described as reclining at table with him. And, and that would have been the normal way people would have reclined to eat. Uh, we, we sit at the table, but when they had a dinner like this, they, they actually reclined around a low table and that was just what they thought of as the correct way to eat. And so Lazarus is described as being there uh, reclining at the table. Um, and Mary is not mentioned there at the beginning until she commits this act of honor to Jesus. Now, keep in mind, they aren't very far from Jerusalem, three kilometers over the hill. If you're leaving Jerusalem and you're going up over the hill of Mount Olives and then a little way farther out would be, would be Bethany. It's not that far of a walk. And we might think it's a long walk, but in those days, that would not have been considered terribly difficult. And so they're sitting there, they're having this dinner in Jesus' honor. The guests are there. We, we only really know of one other guest, and that's Judas. But we see Mary comes out, and, and she anoints Jesus' feet. Now, to you and I, that's a kind of an unusual thing to think about someone doing, and it truly was unusual in those days. If there was any care to be given for a guest and in, in washing of feet or any other, other kind of attending to the feet, that was always done by a servant. That would not have been done by, by someone of the status or stature of Mary. But she is betrayed here or portrayed here as taking out this about a pint Sometimes they say 12 ounces, a pound is often decided or cited as part of the, the description of this, a Roman pound. And, and she takes out this jar, this pure nard, expensive perfume, and pours it on Jesus' feet. Now, as I said earlier, this is probably a perfumed oil, it wouldn't be perfumed necessarily in the way we think of it, but it was a very valuable oil perfumed oil. It came from a plant in the mountains of northern India, and it was, it was very expensive. As, as the story tells us, it was very expensive because later we learned that it was, it was worth a year's wages. So Mary 
anoints the feet of Jesus, wipes his feet with her hair, and we begin to wonder what, what's going on here. Now, one of the interesting observations of this is that usually when someone was anointed with oil, it was their head that was anointed. And some people have, have looked at this story and they've said, hmm, in this case, it was Jesus' feet that Mary anointed. And so it points out when it comes to Jesus, his feet are more worthy than a normal head. And I kind of think that's an interesting way of looking at that, don't you? So it kind of gives us a sense of the importance of Jesus. Well, immediately after this takes place, after the, the aroma of the perfume fills the, the house, the fragrance, as it says in the NIV, fills the house, one of Jesus' disciples objects. Judas Iscariot. Now, you remember the story, Judas is the one who would later betray Jesus to those who would capture him and later take him to his crucifixion. Well, Judas objected to the use of the perfume in this manner, and of course he says, and rather we might say, and we don't want to overly do this, but you can fairly read into this and say Jesus or Judas rather self-righteously said that this, money, this perfume should have been sold and the money given to the poor. He was the guy that knew better what should take place here. What Mary had done was not right. After all, he goes on to say, this was worth one year's wages. Now think about that, worth one year's wages. Now, I think that's brilliant that the Bible gives it to us in that type of description, rather than giving us a dollar amount. And we can calculate that with some accuracy in terms of the, the, the amount that that would have been in that day. But think about how that comparison resonates with us today and how we can, can get a per, perspective on that that really cuts through a lot of baloney. So if you think of a year's wages as $35,000 a year, and that would be pretty much on the low side, people would say today, then you understand a certain measure of that value. Because if you're used to being paid $35,000 for a year's wages, then that's a lot of money to you because that's a year's wages. On the other hand, if you're paid, let's say, $65,000 a year, then that value is a little different because you're thinking, hmm, that's, that's a different amount. There's a difference between $35,000 and $65,000. Well, what if you bump that up and say a year's wages is $150,000? And you say, wow, that is a lot of money. Well, you, you begin to get the idea, no matter how you calculate the actual money value of that, the description is a year's wages. And whatever a year's wages is to you helps you understand the relative value of that. And it helps you have an idea of what's going on here in Judas's head when he's saying, hey, hold on a minute, we should sell that, give it to the poor. This was a waste. Now he didn't say waste, but that's what he implied. It's also important to note that the the story tells us that Judas didn't care about the poor, and it says it straight up. Did you catch that? You probably did. It, it says that he was a thief, a thief. You see, he was the keeper of the money bag, as it says here, or we might say treasurer, and so he was used to dipping into the treasury whenever he wanted, and he would take some for himself. 
So one of the things that's clearly going on here is a little jealousy, a little envy, a little, hey, I want my cut of that. Clearly, some of what's going on here is as treasurer, Judas wanted to control that money. He wanted to control how it was spent. And particularly, he wanted to control some of it that he might have been thinking would have been nice to kind of put in his own pocket. Now, Jesus, on the other hand, did not criticize her. Now, we often think of these things in very practical terms, and we, many of us, are not extravagant in, in terms of perfume. There's a whole lot of people that don't, don't wear any perfume, and it's not because they couldn't, they just don't want to spend the money for it. It's not a value to them. Well, Jesus didn't jump on that bandwagon and say, hold on a minute, this perfume should have been better, or this money should have been better spent than except on this perfume. No, he didn't do that. In fact, he, he said that she's preparing me for my burial. Hmm. It was intended, Jesus says, that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. Interesting. Now we know from burial practices of that time that when someone died, they would prepare the body, wash it, wrap it in linen cloths, and put between the strips of cloth. And in other ways, they would add spices and other perfumed kind of, of, uh, of uh, oils or other perfuming agents, because that was part of the ritual of, of burial. And so when, once that had all been prepared, then the person would be put in a tomb and, and they would leave and leave the, the body there. So Jesus was saying, Mary is simply getting a head start on that and pointing toward what was going to be happening very soon in Jerusalem, that Jesus would die. And so he defends that. Now, we don't know, as far as I can tell, how much people would have spent on burial spices, those aromatic spices that they would use. We don't know what the cost of that was, but no matter what the cost of it was, Jesus is defending the use of it in this way. And he's contrasting it with what Judas said was the way he thought it should have been spent or used. You see, Judas thought that the perfumed oil should have been sold and the proceeds of that sale used for the poor. Jesus rejected that. He didn't say we shouldn't help the poor. He didn't reject assisting those who need help. Not at all. But he said, you can always help the poor. You can't always do something like this for me. He said that the poor will always be present, but I won't always be present. Now, this is an interesting statement, and it's a reflection of Deuteronomy 15.11, so it's not unprecedented, but it is an interesting statement relative to Jesus. So what's going on here? Well, on the one hand, someone might say, well, what do you mean? You mean there's no hope for the poor to, um, to get over stuff like this, to get beyond that? Is, is there no way that the poor can, can be helped to rise above their station? We should just accept the fact that, well, they're always going to be poor people, so there's not much we can do. Well, I don't think that's what's going on here, because there are other places in the scriptures that remind us to help the poor. I think the contrast is that Jesus is saying, you need to think about the value 
of my presence. You need to think about the value of, and he didn't use this word, but we can use it in understanding the situation. You need to think about the value of Messiah. You need to think about the value of the one who will save the world from sin. Yes, you will always have opportunity to help the poor, but no, this is a special time. This is the only time that you have me with you, and you shouldn't overlook helping me. Now, here I have to be real careful when I talk about help for the poor, but I think we need a little perspective on this, and it's only a little because that's not the point of our looking at this story today, but it does, it does pertain to it, and so we should at least give it a thought. What is all of this about helping the poor? Now, sometimes people say what Jesus meant here was, hey, look, fellas, you have money. You could put that toward the poor if you really meant that, and you could help them. Well, I don't know. He might have meant that towards some people. Maybe there were wealthier people that he might have admonished to do that. Uh, we don't know that he's saying that right now, but we ought to take it to heart that, that, yeah, we do live in a time that we, for example, and that's what the story is intended to do, help us. We could help the poor most anytime we want. And many of us, not all of us, I'm not presuming on your your financial well-being or your financial difficulties, but many of us could help the poor whenever we wanted to. Many of us actually do. Our church takes an offering every month, and, and I say take, we, I should say, because I always think about it this way, and, and I want us to think about it, we give an offering. We don't take from people. We give to the church. We give to God's kingdom. And so, we give ourselves the opportunity to present an offering that we set aside, we save to help people when they need a little bit of help. Well, that's a way that we can help people who get in some kind of financial distress. And we know we will always have that opportunity, and we've had some uh, times to do that. And I know of one particular time that it made a huge difference in the life of a person. And this person was able to get their life turned around and it wasn't just because of what we did, but we played a, a, an important part of that. So we can most always find a way to help the poor. Now, then people will sometimes argue and they'll say, but there are all these ways that we as a, as a people help the poor, not just the church, but there are all kinds of other programs, government programs, private groups that form food banks to provide food and other resources to the poor. What about all of that? How does that all fit together? Well, here's where we need to be careful and, and really think this through carefully. And I would encourage you to do a little more work on it than what we're going to do here. But poverty was different in those days than it is in our day. It doesn't mean that, that people didn't suffer then or that they don't suffer now. But let's just consider the American context versus that context. One of the things that was true of those who were in poverty in those days was that they had little hope of getting out of their impoverished condition. The economic system wasn't at all like ours. You know, today we think about how people can make a better life for themselves. And I mentioned this person that our church helped who did make a better life and is enjoying a better life today, partly because we helped. So we think of helping the poor many times as as a way to give them a hand up, to help them help themselves, because there's opportunity for them to do that. And we have a, a tendency to think in those terms. 
And there's nothing wrong with that. I like the idea that we can help someone get on solid ground so that one day they have the joy of helping someone else. I think that's a per perfectly legitimate way of thinking about that. And I hope you agree. So when we see admonitions in the Bible to help the poor, we have to think the contrast. The poor in those days simply needed money to survive because poverty was a survival situation. Sometimes poverty is, is a survival situation in this country, but many times it's not. Many times people get in really desperate conditions, not because there isn't help, but because of the choices they make and the way they choose to live their life. And so they've cut off the help that might have been available to them. For example, if you've ever tried to help someone and you ask them, well, have you tried to see if your mother would help you? And it's a real clue when someone says, no, my mother won't help me. Well, you have to really mess up for your mother to reject you in most cases. None of this is 100%. You understand that. But that's an example of how we have to, to think carefully about this because the poor in our country have some advantages, many advantages they didn't have in Bible times. And so when we think about how to help the poor and our responsibility to help them, it doesn't change our responsibility, but it certainly will affect the way we think about it and then apply it. Because sometimes we are not helpful because sometimes if we give people in certain situations money, it just enables them to keep messing up and it doesn't require them to change their life and live better and to do right. So as you think about how you help the poor, I want you to think about that because I think it's really vital that we understand the, the differences in the economic systems of biblical times and our times, and then try to figure out how is it that we navigate that so that we can actually help people and is there a difference in what we might assume as opposed to what really we should do based upon the principles that is money being thrown at the problem always the right answer? Sometimes it probably is. If somebody's desperate and they just have to have a meal, then you might need to give them a meal. Occasionally someone has asked me for a, a little gas money to get someplace to visit someone that's, that's sick or hurt. Well, that may be the kind of situation where okay, I'll give them some gas money and, and wish them well, and away they go. That was a critical need at that moment. At that moment, I couldn't do anything to get them to make better choices or to lift them out of the situation they were in. I just had to respond to that. And yes, we all think about maybe some of those people ripped me off because they didn't really need it. They just told me a sad story and they were a good actor. And that convinced me that I should help them with the money. All of those things go through your mind. I get that. But nothing in this story tells us that we shouldn't help the poor. It just simply contrasts helping the poor, which we can always do, always, and how we can give to Jesus because he was with them at this distinct, discrete time in history. He would not always be with them. And so their opportunity to do something for him was limited, and that's what he commended Mary for, because she had attended to him in preparation to his burial, and in a sense reminded all of his disciples, and now he reminds all of us, that he was on his way to Jerusalem, and he would be killed for the sin of the world. He would become sin for us. 
he would die for the sin of the world. And that's a hugely significant. So this story brings up a number of things, and we want to explore maybe the most significant of those is, is this idea of, of how much is too much. And when we come back in just a minute, we're going to talk about that. And you know, when I say that, how much is too much? And when I say, can we give God too much? Some of us are going to say, well, yeah, I don't want to be a fanatic. I don't want to be one of those guys. Well, think carefully about that because we're talking about God here, God who created everything. So can we really go give God too much, whether it's money or time or energy? Can we give God too much? How do we understand that? And how do we make the decisions of that? And how do we measure that? Oh, it can be quite a, a, a complicated thing. It can be quite challenging. But we want to explore that. In just a few minutes, we're going to take a break, or really less than a minute, we're going to take a break. But while we're doing that, I really would encourage you to think this through and, and give some thought to this idea of how much is too much. How much is too much? Can, can we give God too much? Is there a limit to what we should give to God? Might we give God so much that we put ourselves in jeopardy and we end up being dependent on other people? Would that be too much? Or, and here's the real kicker, or are we too much like Judas? We want to retain control of the money. And so that's what affects our how much is too much. Well, you think about that. It's worth thinking about it. If I haven't scared you off, come back and join us in just a little bit, because we are going to talk about that some more, and it's really crucial to our understanding of how we manage our resources before God. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. We'll be right back. If you're like me, you'd like life to return to some kind of normal. You're burned out on the precautions, but deep down, you still want to avoid getting sick. You've heard it talked about time and again by respected medical professionals. Use a povidone iodine antiviral nasal spray. Made in the USA, Cofix RX reduces viral loads and minimizes the risk of you getting sick. Find a retailer near you or click our banner ad on americaoutloud.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Each of us is born with 30 trillion cells that make us. These cells determine how we feel, perform, sleep, focus, and how long we live. And to live our best life, all we have to do is feed our cells. But most food and supplements don't reach our cells, keeping us from reaching our full potential. Make every cell count with Healthy Cell. Founded with a mission to empower people to take control of their own health at the most fundamental level, Dr. Vincent Jampapa, world-renowned cell researcher and medical doctor, created supplements that work at the cellular level to boost immune health, sleep better, focus deeper, and stay younger longer. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of any product. And that's HealthyCell.com. H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. How the spirit of American liberty and justice is woven into the soul of America Out Loud. Now we invite you friends to invest some of your time with our magnificent family of experts, their minds and voices 
It's all back at AmericaOutloud.com. Liberty and justice for all. Welcome back. This is Faith Is, and I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. This is the program where we discover that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And I want to help you. I want to help us. I want to, as we go through these weeks together, I want to stretch my faith because I want to have an increasing and increasing and deepening and widening understanding of the confidence that I can have in God and that all of us can have in God. And I want you to learn and develop and to grow in your confidence, because when we have confidence in God, we can follow in the direction he leads us and not be reluctant. And some of us are reluctant, and we're talking about the need for that in relation to this story that we've been processing from John chapter 12, where they were at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and Mary anointed Jesus' feet with this very expensive perfumed oil, or sometimes we just call it perfume, and she was immediately challenged by Judas that that was the wrong thing to do. He said it should be sold and the money given to the poor. The storyteller reminds us that Judas didn't care a lick for the poor. He just wanted control of the money so they could put it in the money bag because he was the treasurer. He was the guy that handled the money, and he would have dipped into that money and taken some of it for himself and nobody would have known, probably. But Jesus, on the other hand, intervened, and instead of condemning Mary like Judas did, Jesus commends her that she was actually, in advance, preparing his body for burial. And we talked about how that is a common custom there. They would put burial spices or perfumed oil, something that they would combine with the linen wrappings when they would wrap the body of the person who died, and prepare it for burial. And we've been talking about this idea of money and giving to the poor. And now I want to think about, and, and this, you're not, you're not going to like this. Okay. So just, just get ready. I, I guess you need to buckle your spiritual seatbelt. Okay. But I want us to think about this, that are we like Judas in the sense that we want to control the money that's in our hands? See, one of the things that that we have to wrestle with from the story is that Judas wanted to sell that perfumed oil for a year's wages, and he wanted, so he said, to give to the poor. Well, if they had sold that, before it could have ever been dispersed to the poor, it would have ended up in their treasury, in their money bag, as the text reminds us. And it also reminds us that Judas was a thief. And so he would have likely stolen some of that, wanted to steal some of that. And so we have to think about our attitude toward money and how we manage it. You see, we we need to think about what we do with the resources God gives us, because he puts them in our control. And so when we make decisions about that, we have to think, are we trying to control what God has given us and, and keep it tightly contained, or are we trying to exercise proper stewardship with the resources God has given us, and so that we bless the kingdom of God and we do the right thing by perhaps the poor in this case, perhaps in other situations, in the way because our economy is different and our, our approach to doing ministry in the name of God and all those kind of things is a little different. 
But the fundamental issue that I want us to think about is, do we want to control the money? Now, I've seen evidence of this in some of the writings that I'll see. People will say, well, I don't, I don't mind giving, but I don't want to give. And this is what really gets my attention. So you'll, you'll understand. But I don't want to give all that I give to the church. I want to give some here, and some there, and, and I want to be the one to decide what goes where. And immediately when I hear those or read those kinds of things, I, I have to wonder, are these people exercising proper stewardship, or are they looking for a way to control the money? You see, the Bible's pretty clear, and I know there are people that will argue with this, but the vast majority have believed for as long as I've paid attention to this sort of thing, that the right thing for us to do as, as followers of Jesus is to give our 10%. And I have no reluctance to do that. I was fortunate. My parents taught me to do that. And so I don't even think about it. Occasionally, I am tempted to think about, wow, how much that is every month and what I might be able to do with that if I didn't give it to God and to the church. And I'm not naive. I know what I might do with it, but I don't dwell on that. I quickly dismiss that and think about something else because that's a trap and I don't want to fall into that trap. One of the things that I remember when I get to those kinds of of uh, mental exercises is that one of the really good things that helps me in many ways is to recognize that when I give that money, I no longer control the use of that money. And I think for many of us, I think for most of us, maybe for all of us, the idea that, that we can freely give to God and the church and give up control of that is a very significant change in our thinking. Now, you might say, well, somebody's got to decide how that's spent. Doesn't the church decide that? Yes. We have mechanisms in our church. Every church I've known about has mechanisms for deciding how that money is spent. But in almost every single place, now I've heard of a few places, I have not experienced it. Those decisions are never made by one and only one person. It is a corporate decision. We have systems in place for deciding that. Yes, occasionally somebody has to make a money make a money decision because something has to be decided. There's not time to call a church meeting. Well, we understand that. We have mechanisms in place for that. We have budgets that guide us, all of those kinds of things. We don't call a church meeting every time we pay the electric bill, for example. So, so we understand that. But when I give, and this is what I want us to think about, when I give, I give that money away, and I entrust it to God and his people to take care of all that needs to be taken care of with that money. So I give up control of that. Now, I don't know how you make your giving decisions to God and to the church, but I want you to think about, are you attempting to control the resources God puts into your hands? Now, what do I mean by that? I mean this, my concern these days, and this is a pastor's concern for many people, is that we really do want to control it because we want to spend that money on ourselves. We say to ourselves, well, I need a new, and we fill in the blank, or I need to be able to subscribe to this. Maybe it's a cable TV subscription. Maybe it's something else. We live in an age that subscriptions are popping up everywhere. I need this or I want this. And so based upon this idea that I need or I want, 
we exercise our control and we convince ourselves that I'm doing the right thing because I need this, or maybe I want it, but I convince myself I need it. Well, after all, how could I get along without a cable TV subscription? Because how could I watch TV without it? Well, in some places you can't. I've lived some places where you there were little or no access to television without a cable TV subscription. So I understand that. But I have also lived in a lot of places where over-the-air TV was available and useful, and maybe we ought to get by with that. You know, there are things that people talk about seeing on television that I don't see because I don't have the same access to that because I am not willing to spend the money for that. All right. So we need to think about that. And particularly in this idea of, do I want to control it? Well, as you're thinking about that, let me suggest another couple of ideas that I don't think we think about very often. Is our, is our uh, desire, <laughs> temptation to control really a form of stealing if we're not able to give generous, generously or appropriately to God and his church. You see, Judas didn't want to help the poor. He was a thief. Now, I'm not calling you a thief. I don't know you. Don't hear me saying that. I'm asking you to examine your own life, your own choices, and say, am I controlling this money? And maybe I'm using it for something that I think is really a good thing, but I'm still controlling how it's used instead of entrusting it to the control of the people of God, the church. So it can be used for the kingdom of God in the way we all think best. You see, so, so sometimes our desire for control is a desire that ultimately looks like what Judas was doing, stealing. So ask yourself that serious question. and Don't go by it too quickly. And now ask yourself a couple of other questions or think about a couple of other ideas. What is money? Well, we have a system of money that guides our exchanges. We no longer depend on the barter system. Occasionally, people will trade one thing for another, or that might be part of a deal where we give something that we have to someone else in exchange for something they have. And maybe because of the value, we give them this widget that we have, plus a little bit of money to make it more equal. We do those kind of things too. But most of the time, we just do our exchanges with money. And so money is a medium of exchange. We go to the grocery store, we need milk and bread and hamburger and ketchup, and you fill in the blank of your grocery list. And we go to the checkout and they add up the amount and we exchange money for those goods. I give them my $20 or whatever the cost of my purchase is, and they give me the bread, milk, hamburger, whatever I need. So money becomes a convenient medium of exchange. It's much easier to do a transaction like that than for me to bring something of value and try to trade it to the owner of the store and figure out how what I have is worth what he has and we're willing to swap for that. So money is a very convenient medium of exchange. We do that all the time when we fill up our cars with gas. And I know that's a sore subject because the prices are way high, but we have money to use in that because that makes it real easy. We can pull up to the gas pump and we can pay the, the bill and away we go. Nearly all of the commerce that you and I are engaged in is based upon using money as a medium of exchange. 
So that's a that's an important thing to understand. The second thing that I'd like to call our attention to is that, and I'm not an economist, but I like the way economists think. And I got this idea, these two ideas, hearing an economist talk about them, this idea of a medium of exchange. And then the second one is money is a carrier of value. Because the amount of dollars, the number of dollars I will give for a widget reflects my value of that. So I mentioned earlier when I was asking how much is too much that my wife has been known to see something she's interested in purchasing and walk away and say, no, I'll wait till they lower the price. Well, I don't know that it always works out for her, but it has worked out very much in her favor from time to time. And so when they lower the price in order to get rid of the product, she will then take that money, that carrier of value and say, now it's at a value that I agree with. And so I will give them that money, that value for that product. So money is a carrier of value. And now sometimes we have to pay more than we want to. I'm sure many people right now are paying more for a gallon of gasoline than they want to. Uh, not just because the price has gone up so much, but just because we don't want to. So there are things that we have to purchase that we really don't want to, but, but we recognize that in our economic system, the price on that product is a measure of its value. And the money we give then carries some value from us to the seller as part of the exchange. Well, Judas was thinking about this perfumed oil as something of value, and he wanted to turn it into money because he could then control that money and probably, based upon the way the story is told, actually steal some of that money and use that money then ostensibly for the poor or however he wanted to, so he could control it. But it was a medium of, of exchange in that sense because he was going to exchange some of the value into his pocket. And it was a carrier of value because he could measure the money that would come to him, come to their treasury by selling it. So you can see he had that same dynamic going on, although their economic system was very different than ours. So the, the question for us then becomes, can we ever be too extravagant toward God? Because if money is a medium of exchange and a carrier of value, then when we come to God to give him an amount of money, we are giving him something of value and placing his, on, on his kingdom a value. So if I give my tithe to the church, which I have done for years, I am saying that giving that to God and his people is a value I will not back down on that is that comes first and so i'm demonstrating that i value the kingdom of god and the church and so i give that value that is my tithe to the church and hands off it's theirs to manage and i give to other things from time to time it's theirs to manage it's a, it's a reflection then when i give my tithes and offerings it's a reflection of the value I place on the kingdom of God, the people of God, the church. So when you think about how you manage your money, and when you think about how Jesus said Mary was doing this for him and preparing him for burial, what are you doing 
for the kingdom of God. And how do we know? How does God know? And you don't have to tell me, by the way, how does God know how much you value him and his kingdom? For if you are a $2 a week giver to God, then you value God and his kingdom $2 a week. If you give $10 a week, then you value it $10 a week. Now, if $10 a week or $2 a week reflects your income for the week, your tithe, your 10% and offerings, then, then you know where you stand. But if you are a $150,000 a year person, then that $10 a week is a long way from what God defines as a tithe, 10%. And it reflects that you value some other things more than you value the kingdom of God. See, I told you, you wouldn't like this, but shouldn't we think about these things straight up? You know, I've said for a long time, people in church don't mind talking about money. They understand that they just mind talking about it because it's so measurable. And that's really what I'm asking us to consider. What is the value we place on the kingdom of God? What is the value that we place on giving to God. And our value of the kingdom of God and of the work of God in the world is reflected in how much we give him and take our hands off of. So that's really the, the bottom line of the story of, of uh, Mary and, the, and this perfumed oil and of Judas' interjection into that. It's really a, a profound illustration of Jesus saying, there's a lot of value to the Savior of the world. It's a lot of value to the kingdom of God, and it's not extravagant to give to me, because I'm with you now, something that's worth a year's wages. So can we ever be too extravagant toward God? You know, I think that's a question that, that you have to ask. Is it being a fanatic to give God first place in our finances and to make sure that we give tithes and offerings and we don't shortchange God? You know, we don't want to be tippers. We want to be tithers. We want to put God first. We want, we want to put ourselves in a position where, where God can say, you have been generous with me. So we need to ask, how much is too much? And for too many people, too little is too much. We need to think about that. Well, I want to wrap up our time together by referring again to this book that I mentioned a couple of weeks ago and, and for several weeks in a row there. I want to get back to it. This book that's entitled Recovering Our Sanity by Michael Horton. And essentially the book that, that Michael Horton wrote says that if we have the right fear of God, then everything else falls into place. And, and the more I think about that, the more he's right. Yes, we sometimes need to take courage, and I encourage that. Sometimes we need to be courageous. But many times we need to ground our basic understanding of life in the fear of God, because God is the ultimate arbiter of everything. And so I want to take a look and encourage you to take a look at that book. We're going to look a little bit at chapter four, probably not get to the whole chapter, but there's a story that he opens the chapter with that helps us. And, and he's trying to help us understand what, what he means and what the Bible means by the idea of fear or the idea of fearing God. And, and what he wants to, to do is help us realize that, that one of the things that, that affects our fear is when we come up against something we can't control. 
And I, th- I think that's really a good way to think about that. When we come up against something we can't control, that's why we tend to be afraid when we get an unpleasant medical diagnosis. We can't control that. Maybe that's part of what makes us afraid when we go to the dentist, because somebody's going to be working in uh, sensitive parts of our teeth with very sharp objects, and we can't control that. And so we're afraid of what might happen. And, and really, I think he's onto something when he reminds us that, that we fear what we can't control. And when we can't control something, we're aware of how fragile we are, how tiny and insignificant we are. And we realize that, that when it's something we can't control, we can either be a friend or a partner, you might say, with that which we cannot control, or we could be the, the victims of that. And C.S. Lewis wrote a very interesting little vignette in his book, The Silver Chair. And Michael Horton refers to that here, and I just want to read that little story to us because it really illustrates this idea of what do we do when we come up against that which we cannot control, and how do we manage that? And so in the silver chair, there's a young girl, Jill, who's been searching and searching for water. She hears the rushing sound of a stream and finally comes up upon the stream into the presence of the lion Aslan. Now Aslan, as C.S. Lewis uses the lion in his stories, is the representative of God. And so Jill comes up to the stream and discovers the lion Aslan guarding the stream. And this dialogue ensues. Are you not thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh, dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. And that ends the story. You see, the fear of God reminds us that we come into the presence of one that we cannot control, but who, but who guards 
the river of life that we cannot live without. And the lion it bids us come and drink of that river of life. And we come and real, realize that we are up against something we cannot control. And we do not know what will happen. But we desperately need the water because, as the story says, there is no other stream. I encourage you to embrace that stream and to trust that lion because faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And while it is fearful to stand in the presence of God, and it should be, God has made a way for us to trust him and to have confidence before him, and he wants us to do just that. Whatever God is talking to you about today, whatever direction he's leading, whatever challenge he may have given you, don't hear a guilt trip from me or shame from me. Hear what God is saying to you. And whatever he's saying, you can have confidence in him to trust him and to actually haul off and do it. And you will find yourself in a stream of living water that makes all the difference in your life, both now and forever. Well, I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and I'm so glad you joined us. We are at Faith Is, and we are developing absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Go with God.